Brother Stephen Hall's lesson tonight is identifying the New Testament church, a very vitally important lesson in any time and especially in the times in which we find ourselves in this pluralistic society where so many are saying that the church is not relevant, not important. And so we look forward to this lesson as we've looked forward to all the lessons in this series. Uh, Steve's biographical information has been on the screen. Many of you may have seen it, and I don't want to take too much of his time, but simply to tell you uh, some things about him, that he is a 2005 graduate of the Memphis School of Preaching. He has preached at Union Grove for uh, the last three years. He also serves as one of the uh, fine elders there. We had all of the eldership from Union Grove with us last night with Steve's presence and the other two uh, brethren from Union Grove, and we appreciate the uh, good work that that church has done and is continuing uh, to do. Uh, Steve and his lovely wife Cindy have been married for 18 uh, years. They have three children, Hunter, Mackenzie, and Carly, and Hunter is still a sick young man and not able to be with us, so we do want to keep Hunter in, in our prayers as he struggles with illness uh, at this time, but we're glad that the others are with us again uh, tonight. Uh, Stephen is a very capable gospel preacher, a faithful gospel preacher, and as we've mentioned, he's a regular part of our Good News Today TV program, and we appreciate again so much the time and talent that he lends to, uh, to that broadcast, uh, being as busy as he is and yet willing to do that. We deeply appreciate it. Look forward to hearing this fine lesson tonight. Brother Stephen Hall. Uh, Song of Invitation 119. Did I say that already? Okay, fine. <laughs> Again, what a privilege and a great pleasure it is to be with you all this evening. I am only saddened because tonight, of course, is uh, after tonight, we only have one more night of this great gospel meeting, and I wish it could go on. I had the great privilege of speaking in Illinois at the first of the month, and the meeting there ran from Sunday morning through Friday night. And I thought that perhaps after a meeting that of, of that length Friday night, I would be so tired, but uh, after Friday evening's sermon, uh, I was ready to go some more, because I believe that is the Word of God, of course, that will strengthen us and will give us that, that great energy and desire to continue on. But again, I just want to say thank you from the very bottom of my heart, how wonderful that you all have been to my family and me, and the great hospitality, the great love. And this is just a, a wonderful, special congregation. I told Cindy, my wife, I said, that congregation at White Oak is a loving congregation. And, of course, as I mentioned Sunday, that your faith has been spoken of throughout the entire world. And I know I personally am very thankful for this great congregation. I'm thankful to, to be a part of the Good News Today program. I, I, I certainly uh, do not uh, deserve... Uh, such an honor, and I do not deserve such an honor as this evening, even to stand before you, but I hope this evening what I can do is stand behind the cross of Christ and preach the truth and to preach the Word of God. It is, of course, the Word of God as it is preached. It will not return unto Him void, and as I mentioned at the first of the meeting, if you don't remember my name, I, I'm happily uh, and, and very thankful for that. But there is one name that I do not ever want you to forget. And that is the name of Jesus Christ. Because He is the one, of course, that we must glorify. Well, tonight, as we begin in our sermon, we, of course, must understand that there are certain characteristics that pertain to the church. And as our, our brother Dearman had said, that the church, of course, is under attack. The church has, has been under attack, and it continues and will be under attack, I'm sure, if the Lord tarries. But this evening, we want to just bring back to memory one of the verses that we looked at last night, and that, of course, is Hebrews chapter 3, verse 4, which says that every house is built by some man, but he who built all things is God. Well, tonight, as, as we think about that, I'd like to ask you the question, have you ever built a house? I'm sure that there are many in here tonight who have had to build a house. And as you have built a house, notice that there are certain things that are required. Number one, of course, you must select a location for your house. You must also have a design for your house. A design is extremely important. 
You, you're going to live in that house. You want to, to have it designed in such a way as that it is pleasing to you. We find as well that you must acquire the proper permits for the house. You, you cannot build without the proper permits. And as you've acquired the proper permits, and as you've selected the location, and as you've selected the design for your house, then you do the building. You build the house. And tonight as we think about this idea of building a house, let's think about what Paul said unto Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. When he said, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. There are so many today who think that the church is the building. There are many in the world today that think that the church is made up, of course, of the wood and the brick and the plaster and everything that we see. But that, of course, is not what is meant by the church in the New Testament. The church is not the structure. The church is not the building. The church is made up of people. I always remember that old little rhyme that was, of course, taught to me as a little child. Perhaps you have heard it as well. Perhaps you've, you've seen that, that here's the church and here's the steeple and open the door and, and here's the people. Well, no, it, it, here's the building, here's the steeple, open the door and here's the church. That's the idea of, of what the church is in the Bible. And we find that the house of God is the church. Notice as well that the church is the house of God. Now, this particular word house or household is used throughout the scriptures and it simply refers to or is defined as a dwelling where love resides by implication a family. So now we have a little bit more understanding and insight now to what the church is, what the house of God is. In essence, what it is, is she is the family of God. And we notice as well that in Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 48, that as Jesus was teaching, remember that his mother Mary had come and his brethren had come and they inquired, but he answered and said unto him that told him, who is my mother? And who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples and said, Behold my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. This is extremely powerful, brethren. We understand that what our Lord is saying is that those who are in the household of God, those who are in the family of God, are those who will do the will of the Father. And we can, of course, understand the house of God. We can understand the church of God because the scriptures teach us and provide for us characteristics, marks of identity that point toward the family of God. Now, there are other ways that we can find or identify the church of Christ, the church of our Lord. We, we can identify her, of course, by her organization. She is, of course, uh, to have elders and to have deacons. And we find that there is never a one-man pastoral system in the church of our Lord. We also can recognize her by the worship. That upon the first day of the week, we, of course, as we sing songs of praise, we give of our means, we partake of the Lord's Supper, we hear the Word of God preached, and we pray. But those particular characteristics are, of course, for another lesson. Tonight, we're going to focus our thoughts upon the blueprints that are found in the Scriptures. God is very particular about how His house is built. We find that to be the case all throughout the Scriptures. That when God has given a specific command or when God has given a specific task to be carried out, He is very particular that it is carried out to the very letter of His Word. And notice that we find in Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, that God had commanded for there to be a tabernacle built, and we read, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. In John chapter 1, verse 14, John writes that of Jesus, and we beheld his, and, and he, of course, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That idea is tabernacled among us. 
we beheld his glory, the glory uh, of the uh, only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, I want us just for a moment this evening to take the example of the tabernacle before we enter into looking at or identifying the New Testament church. Notice we find that in the lists of materials that God had given for that to, to be used in the tabernacle, we find that included in that is gold and silver, bronze, precious stones, yarn, woven linen of blue, purple, scarlet, goat's hair, ram skin, goat skin, oil, uh, spices, uh, acacia wood, embroidery, and tapestry were all employed in the making of the curtains. Now, let's just assume this evening that they were to, as they were building the tabernacle, that they took God's instructions, but yet they made substitutions. Would God have been pleased? Would it have been designed, would it have been made the way that God desired it to be made? No. For example, if they substituted, for example, silver for some other precious metal, God would not have been pleased. It would not have been acceptable unto God. But yet we find that, that there are thousands upon thousands of institutions today that have made such substitutions regarding the family of God. Just as a hypothetical this evening, what if I were to come to your house tonight and in my hand I had a hammer or a sledgehammer and I decided that I was going to go through your house and I was going to make some renovations. I, it, it, well, here you have a wall, but, but I, I am going to tear down that wall there and, and, and I'm going to make it a doorway. And over here, you have another section of your house, and I'm going to take my sledgehammer, and I'm just going to go in, and I'm going to just start to tear it down, and I'm going to make your house look the way I want it to look. Well, I wouldn't stay in your house very long, would I? I'm sure the very first swing of that sledgehammer as it hits against the wall, you would certainly be making me leave your home. But brethren, that is exactly what man has done. Man has taken what is on the uh, surface or the appearance to be the Lord's church and has changed it to suit their own desires. And therefore, we can, of course, see the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can find the identifying marks, the church discovering from whence it came. Ephesians 5, verse 27, Paul says that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but of that it should be holy and without blemish. There was a young girl whose father and mother were of different religious affiliations. And it became a point of contention in their home. Which religious affiliation, which services would they take their daughter to? After much de deliberation and after much debate, they decided that the father would take the girl on one Sunday to his church where he went. The next Sunday, the mother would take the daughter to the church where she attended. And this went on for some time. And, and of course, one Sunday she would be with her father. The next Sunday she would be with her mother. Until one morning as the daughter was sitting next to her father in the services. And as the services are about to conclude, she heard the bell ringing from the church where her mother attended. And she began to weep. And her father looked at her and he, he said, Darling, my, my precious daughter, what is wrong? Why are you weeping? Why are you so upset? She looked at her father, and she said, Father, why didn't God just make one church so that mother and you and I could go together? Brethren, that is exactly what God did. That is exactly what our Lord did. He did make one church. And there is only one church that belongs to our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 22, And God hath put all things under His feet, and given Him to be the head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him that filleth all in all. We find the church now is described as the body. 
Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul tells us that there is now one body. Therefore, there is one church. Ephesians 5, verse 23, the, of course, the church is only one, one body, one church, and Jesus Christ is the Savior of that one body. He is the Savior of that one church. So, brethren, it is important that we understand and know the one church of the Bible if we desire to be saved. Well, the church, of course, as we mentioned, has biblical blueprints. And tonight, we're going to go through the Scriptures, and we're going to denote and point out some of these blueprints that point us toward the church of the New Testament. Brethren, if we desire to be saved, if we desire to go to heaven, then we need to enter into that one church, the church over which Jesus Christ is the head. And notice this evening, we're going to, to look at the church as it was promised. We're going to look at the church as it is given in prophecy. We're going to look at the church as it is in preparation. We're going to see the church in the Bible as it is purchased. And we're going to see the church in the Bible in her perfection. Notice this evening as we begin that we find that in Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, remember, of course, that Adam and Eve had sinned. They had transgressed the law of God. And therefore, since that very moment, at that time of transgression, we find the first gospel sermon, if you will, that is preached. In Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, the foretelling of the Savior. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. And it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. We see here a very important message of hope. We see here the message of salvation for fallen humanity. Now as we notice that this, of course, is this great promise that is given. That, that man, of course, has sinned and humanity uh, has fallen, but, but there is going to be a way now for that mankind to once again be in fellowship with God. And God now at this time looked all the way over time, and He saw the cross, and He saw the church. And therefore we find that the church was promised in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Peter reminds us that the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, for not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He also reminds us that whether a day goes by or whether it's a thousand years that goes by, God is going to keep His promise. Now we also find as well in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, that for whom he did foreknow, he did all, or also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Well, the idea of predestination is, of course, seen in the Scriptures. But God has never predestinated the man. He has predestinated the type of man that would be saved, and he has predestinated the plan that would save, and he has predestinated the place of salvation. And notice that we find that the type of man that is going to be saved is the type of man who is going to humble himself, who is going to be conformed to the image of his son, who is going to obey his word. And now as we see as well in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, that according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Ephesians 3 verse 11, according to his eternal purpose. There are so many today that say that when Jesus Christ came to this world, that since He was rejected of the Jews, that He failed in His mission. And therefore, instead of setting up a great kingdom, He decided then to go with a plan B and to set up the church. Brethren, that certainly is, is not the case. That is not scriptural. That is not according to the plan of God. We find that God had the church in his mind before the very foundation of the world. We find in Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, the great promise that is given unto Abraham, or Abram, that through him all the nations of the world would be blessed, that through his seed all the nations of the world would be blessed. 
Now we find, of course, in Exodus chapter 20, that God gives His covenant unto Israel. He specifically gives His covenant unto Israel. But that was a covenant that was only to last for a, a period of time until, notice, the better covenant was given by the hands of a better mediator. Now I want us to think about, if you will, turn with me to Acts chapter 10, and I want us to notice verse 4 specifically tonight. Remember that it was through Abram that all of the nations would be blessed. Now, what do we find in Acts chapter 10? We find Cornelius. Cornelius is not an Israelite. He is a Gentile. But I want us to note what Luke records for us in verse 4. And when he looked on him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? Remember, of course, the, the angel appeared unto him. And he said unto him, Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a, notice that word, memorial before God. Now, what is a memorial? A, a memorial is a remembrance. It, it is a reminder. And so now we see that as Peter is going to go preach uh, unto Cornelius and his household, that this is once again a reminder of the promise that through the seed of Abram, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Now, how would they be blessed? They would be blessed because those who would obey the word and the will of God could become members of the family of God, members of the church. And so now we find this great promise that is given. Remember, God cannot lie. And His promises are sure. And so now, as He has promised, we find that the church was also spoken of in prophecy. Many scholars have noted that there are over 360 prophecies of our, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, many of these prophecies, of course, relate to, to his place and origin of birth, to his rejection, to his betrayal, to the crucifixion, to the resurrection, and, and so on and so on we can go. But it is amazing to think that according to the fulfillment of these prophecies, if only a handful of these prophecies had been fulfilled, what do you think would have been the odds of, of these prophecies being fulfilled down to the very letter as they had been given. Well, some scholars have suggested that if just only a handful of these prophecies had been fulfilled, the odds would be 1 in 10 to the 17th power. That's 1 in 10 to, with 17 zeros after it. Now, I, I never play the lottery. I do not think that you should. I think gambling is a sin. But the lottery says that one in seven million is, are your chances of winning that lottery. But notice that the, the prophecies that were fulfilled, the, the odds of all of these prophecies being fulfilled, brethren, is mind-boggling. And notice that all of these prophecies that we see, we're only going to look at just a few of them this evening, but I want us to pick out the prophecies, primarily speaking of the church. In Isaiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 2, Isaiah writes, And it shall come to pass. Now, stop there for just a moment. We're going to notice something very similar to this in the book of Daniel, because Daniel is going to say that these things are certain, these things are sure. And notice that the very onset of this, this prophecy, and it shall come to pass. Don't overlook that. It, it's never said it might come to pass. Or it, it, it's, it's a possibility that, that it will come to pass. But it is a certainty. It shall come to pass in the last days. Now, these last days, what, to what does that refer? Well, oftentimes people ask the question, do they not? Are we living in the last days? Some say that, well, the, there are many signs that are taking place around the world today that teach us that we are in the last days. Well, if we look, of course, according to the scriptures and according to history, there were primarily three dispensations. The patriarchal dispensation, the father rule. There was, of course, the mosaic dispensation. And there now is the Christian dispensation, referring to the span of time. And it is in that time, the Christian age, the dispensation, the last days, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains. Now, the idea of a mountain is the idea of authority. Uh, the idea of a rule. And notice that it is in the top of the mountains 
And we're going to note as well that Jerusalem, of course, Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount, built upon the top of the mountain there. And it shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. And many shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up unto the mountain of the Lord, to the house, notice now, to the house. Now, that word house again means what? Family. To the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion, again a reference to what? Jerusalem. Shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from where? Jerusalem. Now, we are told in this specific prophecy the time period that the church would begin. We are also told the place that the church would begin. Now, as we continue on, we find in Joel chapter 2, beginning in verse 28, and also in Zechariah chapter 2, beginning in verse 9, that the prophecies of the church likewise are given. For the sake of time this evening, we're not going to read these scriptures. I just wanted to provide them to you for your own reference and your own study. But there is one more verse or one more section of scriptures that we do want to focus on. Now remember, Isaiah 2, Joel 2, Zechariah 2, Daniel 2, all fulfilled where? In Acts chapter 2. But notice the prophecy found in Daniel, beginning in chapter 2 and verse 36. When we read, of course, just a little background information, remember Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and this dream, of course, was very troubling to him. His soothsayers and all of his magicians, of course, they could not interpret the dream, but there was one who could. The one who had purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. The one, of course, named Daniel. And Daniel comes forward now, and he is about to give the interpretation here of this. But before we read this, I want us to note that in verse 32, that Daniel says the image's head was fine gold. So we read of a gold head. His breast and his arms were of silver. So we read of a a silver midsection. His belly and his thighs, notice, of brass. And then finally, we read of his legs of iron, his feet, part of iron and part of clay. Now let us note what Daniel says. This is the dream, he says, and we will tell thee the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art the king of kings. Now at that particular time, of course, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, was in essence the the world power, the world authority. And notice he says, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom. Now, remember the lesson Nebuchadnezzar had to learn? That God sets up kingdoms and he rules in the affairs of men. And we find that he gave unto thee a kingdom, power and strength and glory, and wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven, hath given uh, he given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Now, notice this. He says, thou art this head of gold. So, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian kingdom, is that head of gold. And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee. In that particular section, he's referring to the Medes and the Persians. And then he goes on to say, And another kingdom, uh, the third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. That is a reference to the Grecian empire. Remember Alexander the Great? He wept because he said there were no more worlds to conquer. Now, as we think about this, let's stop for just a moment. And in his commentary, Brother uh, Rex Turner Sr. makes some extremely important observations concerning this particular prophecy. We find that the Babylonian kingdom, it contributed now to the preparation or to the bringing about of the church through the worshiping in the synagogues. We find that the Medes and the Persians, they contributed now to the preparation or to the bringing about of the kingdom because they had a law which altereth not, Daniel chapter 6. We find as well that the third kingdom, which of course is Alexander the Great, that is a kingdom that provided a universal language. Remember that the scriptures were inspired and written and we find they were written in a, a, a type of Greek called Koine Greek, or a common Greek, or common language. 
Now, as we go forward, we are going to be introduced to the fourth kingdom. Remember the Babylonian kingdom, the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, and of course the kingdom of Alexander the Great are the Greeks. And now notice the fourth kingdom, and all of this is important because it is explaining to us once again the time in which the kingdom, the time in which the church of the Lord would be established. And in the fourth kingdom shall be, and the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces, and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all things, shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. But there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay, and as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. Now this, of course, is a reference to the Romans, the Roman Empire. Now, it is extremely important that we understand those four kingdoms. Because in the very next verse, in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, Daniel is extremely clear when he says, And in the days of, notice, these kings, which kings? The, the Roman Empire. Shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed? And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. So now again, we are, we are told by this prophecy, the prophecy in Daniel, the time period in which this church, this kingdom would be set up. Now there is that other word we want to see tonight. Remember, we, just a few moments ago, we looked at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, and we saw that the word church... And the word body are synonymous. So if we were to say the body of Christ, we could also refer to or mean the church of Christ. But we also see that the church and the body is also called a kingdom. Now there are so many today who, who teach and, and preach that, that the church and the kingdom are not the same. They say, well, yes, the church is in existence today, but there's going to be a time sometime down the road, sometime in the future, when Jesus is going to come back and he is going to set up an earthly kingdom. Brethren, again, that is not according to Scripture. We, we find that the kingdom is the church. Now, how do we know this? Well, of course, the prophecy tells us, but I'd like for us to note what Paul says in Colossians 1, verse 13. He says, and who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Now, the idea of translation is simply this, taking something from one place and then putting it somewhere in a different place. That's the idea of a translation. Now, if during the time of Paul, the kingdom did not exist, if during the time of the writing of the letter to those in Colossae, if the kingdom did not exist, then how were those who were in Colossae, how did they get translated into it? You see, the kingdom did exist. The kingdom, the body, the church, the bride of Christ. John 18, verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. For if my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. He says, But now is my kingdom... Not from hence. Jesus is very clear, very specific, that his kingdom, his church, his body, his bride would be established at that time. And now we find the church, the church in promise, the church in prophecy, and now the church in preparation. In Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1, Malachi prophesies. When he says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. In chapter 4, verse 5, he says that there will be a prophet, the great Elijah, who will be sent forth and will prepare the coming of the Lord for the great day, great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, to what is he referring here? Well, of course, this particular prophecy was fulfilled in the man that we call, that we know as John the Immerser. 
John the baptizer, Matthew chapter 3, verse 1 and verse 2. In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When something is at hand, something is nearby. Something is close by. And so John the Baptist, of course, is that one of whom Malachi prophesied that would prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. I like that when we read in the scriptures about John the Immerser, that he will make the paths straight. You see, it is the case that the ancients and the, 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 those in Judea, when they made a road, they, they would make that wandering a little goat path, if you will. If they came upon a great obstacle, a great mountain, they would just kind of go their way around it. But not the Romans. Remember, it was, of course, the Babylons that contributed the synagogue worship. It was the, the Medes and the Persians that contributed to the law that altereth not. And it was, of course, the, the Greeks that contributed to that common language. But notice the Romans. They, they had this great, great road system. And when they created a road, they would create it smooth and flat. They would go over any obstacle. It did not matter what was in the way. They would pave that way. And that is the idea that they could understand. Is that this man, John the Baptist, was to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. Now we're told in Matthew 11 and verse 11 that John the Baptist or John the Immerser it was not a citizen in the kingdom. Therefore, he was not a member in the, of the church. He was not in the body of Christ. But notice that he prepared the way. He said that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. So at this particular time, the church had not been built. The, the church had not been established. But it was about to be established. It was getting ready to be established. And we find in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, that Jesus again affirms what John said. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, let us also look at another passage of Scripture wherein Jesus speaks about this great kingdom. When he says in, uh, as in Mark chapter 9, verse 1, And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here, which shall not taste of death till they have seen the, notice, kingdom of God come with power. Now, when Jesus was teaching this and when Jesus was, was preaching, he was referring to those who were among his presence, those who were in his midst. And notice that he says very plainly, very specifically, that there would be some who were among him in his midst who would not die until they viewed with their eyes, until they saw the kingdom come with power. So note that we find that the church was not established during the time of John the Baptist. The church had yet to be established during the earthly ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we find in Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 18, that He had made provisions that the church be established and built. When he said, And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now these keys that Jesus is referring to, we find that on the day of Pentecost, and we'll notice that in just a few moments as well, that Peter and the others preached a message. And when they preached that message, they preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, and therefore the keys unlocked the kingdom, the gates opened, and they have remained open and continue to remain open until this very day. And notice in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, that we read that before Jesus ascended into heaven, remember after His resurrection, He was with His apostles for 40 days. And He spent that time, of course, and, and, and now we find that He is about to ascend up again once into, into heaven, to sit at the right hand of God. And notice that He says, But ye shall receive power 
After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem. Now, remember, from Jerusalem shall go forth the word. And in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Now, let's take Acts 1 verse 8. And we see there that they shall receive power. And notice again in Mark 9 verse 1, and he said that there will be some there that shall not taste of death until they see the kingdom of God come with power. So now we find that the church is in preparation. The church was given in promise. The church, of course, was given through prophecy. The church, of course, was in preparation. But now we find the purchase of the church. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, when Paul was talking to the elders in Ephesus, he reminded them of this important fact. He said, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. So now we find that in order for this beautiful kingdom, this beautiful church, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, for, for it to now become a reality, for, for her now to, to be brought in and perfected into the world, she had to be purchased with the blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In Matthew 26, verse 28, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, we read where he says, For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now that idea of for the remission of sins is the same idea that we see in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. When Peter said, Repent ye every, every one of you and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, notice, for the remission of sins. Now at this particular time in the Lord's Supper, had Jesus been sacrificed? No, not yet. Had, has, had His blood been shed? No, not at this moment. So He is saying that, that this is for, in order for your sins to be remitted. It's the same idea as the word E-I-S, ace, in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. For the remission of sins. Not because your sins have been forgiven, but so that your sins will be forgiven. And so now we find that in the purchase of the church, the idea of purchasing is explained in the concept of what we call redemption. Redemption is simply purchasing or buying back. We, of course, had become slave to sin, slaves to sin. We had to be redeemed. We had to be bought back from that state. What redeems us? Only the blood of Christ. What buys us back from that pitiful condition outside of Christ? We find, of course, the blood of Christ. And those who are in the church, the body, the kingdom, all one and the same, have been redeemed with the blood of Jesus Christ. Notice that Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 1.18, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. Then he says in the very next verse, But by the blood of Jesus Christ, the precious blood of Jesus Christ, as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Just think for, all, for a moment of all of those sacrifices that were made under the old law. All of those sacrifices that were made under the Old Covenant, the rivers and rivers and rivers of blood that flowed from that altar over and over and over. Just think, if, if we could even just have for a moment an account of what all of that blood would total up to be, none of that could take away sin. Only those who are redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Notice are those who have had their sins removed. Those likewise who are bought with a price and therefore we must glorify God in our body and our spirit, which are God's, 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 20. And therefore the bought back are added to the church. And now we find the church in perfection. 
The church was given in promise. The church, of course, seen in prophecy. The church, of course, in preparation. The church as it is purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ as we are bought back, as we are washed in His blood. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And now we find in the Scriptures the church in perfection. We find in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, that when the day of Pentecost had fully come, now, in A.D. 33, we find the day of Pentecost had come. Now, remember that the apostles had been told to go into Jerusalem and tarry until they be endued with power from on high. So now, we find that they did what the Lord had said. They were now endued with that power from on high. Peter and the others were now ready to preach the word, that message, the keys of the kingdom. And we find that on this particular day, the day of Pentecost, which also known as the Festival of Weeks, known as the Festival of Reaping and the Day of First Fruits, that this particular day took place 50 days after the High Passover. Now, the Passover was on, of course, the seventh day, Saturday. Now, 50 days from that day would be 49 days, seven weeks, Saturday, add one, which would be the first day of the week. So now we see that upon this very first day of the week, on this day of Pentecost, Peter and the others are preaching, and we find that in Acts chapter 2, they heard the word as it is preached, and notice that they were convicted. They were convicted in their hearts because they knew that they had sinned, they knew that they had put the Son of God to death upon the cross, and therefore now, they were convicted in their hearts. And then when Peter preached unto them, notice that they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? And therefore we find that when Peter told them what they had to do, that they were converted, some 3,000 souls. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, we read that praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Now notice that word added. That, that is extremely important for us to understand tonight. Because there is a very common thought and a very common and accepted belief that one can go and join the church of their choice. Haven't you heard that? H haven't you heard uh, so many people on the television say, well, put your hands on the television and pray this prayer with me. And, and if you prayed this prayer with me, now go find a church and go join the church. Church, brethren, we do not join the church. We do not go out and pick and choose a church that suits us. But rather, when we obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we are redeemed by His precious blood, notice that God adds us to His church. And therefore, we find that in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, that the church was in existence. The church was, of course, established for as Saul, he had made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison, Acts 8, verse 3. Now again, just as Paul had said that they had been translated into the kingdom, how can Saul have wrecked havoc upon something that did not exist? How could Saul put men and women into prison who were members of the church if they were not members of the church. So therefore we find the church as it is in perfection. And therefore the church has specific characteristics by which she can be identified. There was a frantic mother at a shopping mall who realized that her son had gone missing. She was shopping she was paying attention to the, the prices on the, on the price tags, and she turns around and she realizes that her 10-year-old boy was missing. So she becomes frantic, and, and she cries out for help, and, and the security, they, they come over to her, and, and she tells them that her son is missing. Help me find him. How can, can you help me find my son? And the security asked her, well, can you describe him for us? She said, well, yes, his name is Bill. He has on a red hat, a white shirt, and blue tennis shoes. So immediately the security starts to, to span out and to search for this young boy. 
they, they, they go around, they find this little boy named Bill, and they bring him to, to this woman. No red hat, no white shirt, no blue tennis shoes. But his name is Bill, won't he do? Won't he be acceptable? So they go out again, and, and they're searching, and, and they finally they find another little boy. His name is Bill. He has a red hat, but no white shirt, no blue shoes. Again, they bring him to the woman. Well, we found him. Here, here, here he is. Here is your son. Well, that's not my son. Well, well he, his name is Bill, and he has on a red hat. Won't he do? Certainly we know that that would not be acceptable. And so finally they go and they do find the boy. They bring him back to his mother. He meets all of the characteristics. He has all of the identifying marks that she had given unto them. And likewise, the church has identifying marks. Notice the founder, Jesus Christ. Matthew 16 and verse 18. As well as the place of origin... Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2 and verse 3. Again, it was established in Jerusalem. But likewise, the time. In the last days, AD 33, Acts chapter 2, verse 16. Peter said, this is that of which Joel the prophet spoke. And we find, of course, a scriptural or biblical name. The church of Christ It is a description of those who belong to Christ. Whenever I, I teach or preach on denominationalism, I always like to preface what I say because I want everyone to know and understand that I'm not in the putting people down business. I'm not insulting or putting down individual people. That is not what we should do. There are many sincere and, and good people who are caught up in religious confusion. There are many sincere people who, who are sincerely carried away with error. So brethren, tonight, I, I, I am not putting down individual people, but I have a list here and I'd be happy to share it with you of a, a couple of dozen religious institutions that list their founder. not Jesus Christ. They list their place of origin, not Jerusalem. They list their time of origin, not A.D. 33 on the day of Pentecost, and all of the different names that are not found in the Scriptures. And I'd be happy to talk with you tonight if, if you would like to, to talk about that further. Because, brethren, what we must understand, and, and visitors, if, if you are not a member of the body of Christ, if you're not, if, if the church to which you belong does not meet the specific biblical marks of identity, then you are not in the church of the Bible. And Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23, says that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the church. And brethren, He is the Savior of the body. The one body, Ephesians 4 and verse 4, over which He is the head, Ephesians 1, verse 22 and verse 23. And so you see that the church that was established almost 2,000 years ago exists today and you can become a member of her. You can become a member of that church that was given in promise. You can become a member of that church that was spoken of in prophecy, a member of that church that, of course, was prepared, that was purchased, and now exists in perfection. The house of God, the family, the church is built, and we must now make the choice to enter in. Jesus said in John 10, verse 9, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. We only enter through the door. We only enter in through the authority of Jesus Christ. Now notice the authority that He gave unto the apostles. Matthew 16, verse 19, He said again, And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom 
of heaven. Now, what are the keys? We, we mentioned that earlier, didn't we? Remember that wonderful gospel sermon that Peter and the others preached? That message that he preached on the day of Pentecost? That opened up those gates so that all who heard that message and all who obeyed that message could enter in through those gates, entered into the kingdom of heaven? When Peter preached and the others preached the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now there may be some here tonight that, that, doesn't, uh, that do not understand what the gospel is. Many people in the world today are told that in order to become a Christian, they have to pray the sinner's prayer. Say something like, Lord, I, I'm sorry and forgive me, come into my heart. Peter didn't tell them that day to pray that prayer. There are some who say, well, if you want salvation, then come down forward and sit on a bench called the mourner's bench, and the Holy Spirit will work on that shell of your heart until finally it cracks, and then you'll be saved. That's not what Peter said. That's not what the others said. Likewise, there, there are many today that will say, well, you do not have to, to do anything. Brethren, in Acts 2, verse 37, they ask the question, Men and brethren, what must we do? The Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16, verse 30, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? You see, God has made it possible. He has made it now so that we can be saved. Now, what must we do? Well, we must understand that hearing the Word of God, Romans 10, 17, is necessary. We must hear the truth in order to obey the truth. We must also have belief or believe that Jesus is the Son of God, John 8 and verse 24. And, and accompanied with that believing, we must therefore repent of our sins, Luke 13, verse 3 and verse 5. And remember that repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of direction in life. We also must make a confession, just as the eunuch did, according to Acts chapter 8, verse 37, that we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And upon that great confession, we then are baptized, immersed in water for the remission of sins, Acts 2, verse 38. If we fall short of any of these commands, then we will not be added to the church. Now, I have talked with many before who have said that we in the church place all of our emphasis on baptism. Have you, have, has anyone ever said that to you? Why is it that you preach on baptism so often? What, what is it about baptism? You think baptism is the only thing that saves. Brethren, if we're baptized without confession, if we're baptized without repentance, if we're baptized without belief, then we're only getting wet. You see, we have to do all of what God has commanded in order to be saved. And it is at baptism that we find that our sins are washed away based upon and predicated upon our belief, our repentance, and our confession. And when we do what the Lord has commanded, we then find our salvation in Christ. Only then do we find salvation. And God adds you to the church. Acts chapter 2 and verse 47. But now as we become members of the body of Christ, then our walk, our newness of life has just begun. We cannot stop. We cannot quit. We do not become Christians and then go and sit down and, and, and do nothing. We must continue always abounding in the work of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Remaining faithful until the time of our death. Is there one here this evening who needs to do this? Is there one here tonight who needs to be baptized and who needs to have their sins washed away, who needs to obey the gospel of Christ? Or perhaps there's one here who needs to come home because they're no longer abounding in the work of the Lord. Remember that we will only find heaven to be our home if we're found faithful in the end. Tonight... 
if the Lord were to return, what words would you hear him say? Would you hear him say, depart from me? Or would you hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant? I pray it is the latter. If it, can, if it is not the latter tonight, will you make it sure? Will you make it so? The time has been set aside during the song of invitation. If you have that need, would you come as together we stand and as we sing?